All right, turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So this is the calling of Moses. And Moses was in Egypt. That's where he was raised. As you guys probably all know the story, um, his parents hit him for a few months, uh, put him in the basket. His sister watches from afar. Pharaoh's daughter ends up basically adopting Moses into Pharaoh's household. Uh, Pharaoh um, <clears throat> has him in the household and allows him to be trained and educated, but Moses still knew his roots, and, and Hebrews gives us some information about that. And one day he sees an Egyptian struggling with the Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian, right? Pharaoh finds out about it. Moses flees for his life. He's in the wilderness for 40 years. That's kind of where we're brought to here. And he sees the burning bush, and God starts to work in Moses' life. Actually, God continues to work, because God was working all along. When God wants to do a work in a person, um, he'll take that person and he'll call that person to himself. And here's the thing. That calling itself is a commissioning to service. If God calls you, he's giving you a commission to serve him. And God had a task for Moses. Well, he also has a task for us. But I, I want you guys to see this, because we're going to keep reading, and I want you to see how Moses responds to his commissioning from God. So pick it up in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So we're going to see here uh, a number of excuses that Moses gives as to why he shouldn't be the person that God commissions to serve. So the first excuse is, is who am I? Now, potentially that's not an excuse. There's a, f a few times in the, in the Bible where God or an angel appears to someone and, and basically commissions them, and they kind of are like, well, who am I? Like, I'm just your servant, Lord. Like, why would you give me such a privilege? So potentially that's what's going on here. But I want you to notice how God answers Moses. Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. I mean, that's the first thing. 
I'll be with you. So he gives them a reassurance. Hey, I'm commissioning you for this task, and I'm going to be with you. Now, whatever God commissions us to do, he's going to be with us. He promises he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Hebrews says. But I want to say also, who am I? Well, really the answer as well is I'll be with you. And then he goes on and says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, verse 12. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And what God ends up continuing to reveal to the Israelites is that they are his children. So who am I? Well, you're a child of God. And really that should be first and foremost. When we, when we think about who we are, I mean, we are servants. Uh, we're friends with Jesus. But first and foremost, when we think about our relationship to God, it should be one as child to father. That is the, uh, that is the primary way we should relate to Yahweh, is as child to father. That is a very key concept that I think sometimes we can miss out on in our Christian walk, and we end up seeing ourselves as servants of the king, which is true. We're servants. We can see a friend of Jesus. That's true. But we need to see ourselves primarily as children of God. That's who we are. Uh, look at First John 3. Keep your finger in, in, Ephesians, uh, in Exodus because we're coming back. But First John, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And did you guys catch that? It's a certain kind of love. That's what he's talking about. See what kind of love. Not just see the love the Father's given to us, but see what kind of love. Well, what kind of love is is it? It goes on that we should be called children of God. That's the kind of love it is. A love so dear, it's the Father's love for his children. Okay, It's a... A familial love. It's an intimate love. And that's the kind of love that God has for us, that we would be adopted into his family. He didn't have to adopt us. He didn't even have to bring that, if you kind of think about it, he really didn't even have to bring that into the picture of salvation. He didn't. He didn't have to adopt us to save us. But he wants us to know and realize how much he loves us. So he gives us this picture. I mean, we kind of reverse it sometimes, and we think of ourselves... If we're, if we're parents, we think of ourselves as a mom or a dad and how much we love our kids, and then we kind of reflect that to God, but really it's, it's really the other way. Like we see how much God loves us as his children, and then that is how we can reflect it to our children. Okay, So we, we, we get our picture from God, and then we can relate to it a little bit better. But a parent, a parent has an undying love and, and would lay down their life for their children in a moment. Well, I mean, that's how God is with us. He demonstrates it with his own son. So that's the first thing. So <clears throat> we're child of God. Let's read on back in Exodus. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, now here's the second excuse coming up, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So, I mean, his second excuse is like, oh, what do I say? I don't know what to say. <clears throat> what, look, look at the answer. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So his excuse is, what do I say? What, what is God's response? Here, I'll give you the words to say. Here's the words. Say, this is exactly what I want you to say. The story goes on. Let's pick it up in chapter, in chapter 4, a few verses later. We're going to find Moses' third excuse. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now, God just promised him, hey, I'm going to give you the words, and here's what I want you to say, right? But Moses is pushing back still. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So, third excuse, Lord, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. What does the Lord say? He goes on and says, what is in your hand? A staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And it became a, ser- a serpent. I love this part. And Moses ran from it. <laughs> He's like running around. He said, like, throws it on the ground. He's like, ah, snake. Okay. <clears throat> so he runs from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So third excuse, they're not going to believe me. But really, what is the Lord saying here? I'll empower you. I'll empower you. I, through you, will convince these people that I have sent you, that I have commissioned you for this task. Then he has another excuse. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So what's his excuse? Well, I'm I'm not good with words, Lord. I'm not good with words. How does the Lord answer? Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So what, how does he answer this? I'll give you the words. Like he literally says, I will be your mouth. I'll be your mouth, and I'll teach you what to say. But Moses keeps pushing back. Fifth excuse, verse 13. He said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> right? Not really an excuse. He's just like, okay, I've, like, I've given you four, but it hadn't really worked. 
So can you just send someone else? God doesn't let him off the hook. He doesn't use someone else to go in Moses' place. Now, what, rather, what does he say? He says, verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So he says, okay, you're still going. You're not getting out of it. But I'm going to send, I'm going to send your brother with you, okay? So Aaron's going with you. So God's calling Moses, and Moses has all these excuses, all these excuses, all these excuses for, for not wanting to go. Well, guess what? We can be much like Moses. All these excuses, all these excuses for not wanting to go. And we can have many excuses when it comes to serving the Lord, especially in the area of evangelism. Um, you know, we went rank evangelism, you know, right up there with like cleaning out the oven, organizing the basement, writing a 15-page paper. Uh, we just don't look forward to it. That's more a reflection on us than on the Lord. But as such, we look to get out of it. And I want to look at just a common, a couple common evangelism excuses. And we're going to see we're not much different than Moses, but we're going to see that God still commissions us to the task. And he wants us to go. First evangelism excuse. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, that might be true. God has gifted people with a variety of gifts. Now, if you're a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift. And God wants you to fully use that gift. Look at Romans chapter 12. This is one of the passages that talks about the spiritual gifts. It says in verse 6 of Romans 12, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now here's the thing. I don't have the gift of mercy, all right? Some of you probably don't have the gift of mercy. But does that mean you're not supposed to show mercy? No. You're still supposed to show it, right? It might not be your gifting. Uh, but I hope you're showing it. Um, I don't have <clears throat> the gift of service. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're not supposed to serve, right? Just means you don't have the gift of service. Now, next week, we're going to be installing... Uh, two deacons, right? They might not have the gift of service. Um, but they've shown themselves faithful in serving. That's why the body has nominated them and confirmed them, because they've seen their pattern of service. Maybe they don't have the gift. Maybe they do. But they've served. Why? Because that's what they're called to do. And maybe you don't have the gift it mentions here of Giving, well, that's fine. But God wants us to give, right? 
He wants us to be generous with our money. So just because we don't have the gift doesn't mean we're not supposed to do that particular thing. That's really my point. Second excuse. I'm inadequate. Well, great. Because that's going to lead you to depend completely and 100% on the Lord. If you uh, think you're adequate to a task that God has given you to do, and you try to do it, usually what's going to happen is you do it in your own strength. It's going to be epic fail. It's not going to be pretty. Um, God likes to stretch us. God likes to give us things to do and call us to do things that we have to rely completely, 100% on him to do. And for many of us, it's going to be this thing, especially evangelism. So this will lead us to lean on the Lord. And in one sense, you're right. We're, we're all inadequate. None of us are qualified to do the work God has given us. But by his spirit, he more than qualifies us. If you have the spirit of God, then you are qualified. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is God himself speaking to Paul. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you see that? My power is made perfect in weakness. There's that word power we looked at a few weeks ago, right? God has empowered us for the task that he's given us. And look back in verse 7, because I want you to see this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, so God had revealed some things to Paul supernaturally, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now scholars have discussed, debated, argued for, well, a couple thousand years what exactly this thorn in the flesh was. Many different ideas have been uh, put out there. We're not, we don't know exactly what it was. Um, it might have been a physical limitation. It might have been a spiritual oppression. We don't know. But look what happens. Three times, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That's where we get this part. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So again, if you feel insufficient to the task, if you feel inadequate, I mean, maybe you are. But God will give his grace to make it sufficient. Next excuse. I'm not ready. Well, guess what? Me neither. All right? We'll never feel fully ready or prepared. We just won't. Okay? And many different things. Um, people who have jobs, they have a, a, a big, huge presentation to do. I mean, going into it, they probably feel pretty good about it if they've done their work. But if you say, are you fully prepared? Are you fully ready? I mean, no. They could always use more time. <clears throat> You're defending a dissertation or thesis. I mean, you could always use more time. Um, even up here, do I ever fully feel ready to preach? No, I'd always like a little more time. Um, but if, if I did that, I'd just never preach, right? So <clears throat> we might not feel ready, but that's okay. The Lord's going to use us where we're at. If we know Jesus, then we are ready. And the just, just born-again believer, the one who's just been saved, 
um, he or she might be a little rough around the edges, but I mean, one of the most beautiful things to see is someone who's just been saved sharing their faith with someone. It's pretty rough and it's pretty raw, but it's pretty real. And it's a beautiful thing. Next excuse. Well, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Well, that can be good. All right, you know, my kids, they like playing basketball. Um, I don't know if, if at any point, I don't care what level of sports you're at, even in the major leagues, I bet they get a little bit nervous. So you got a game coming up, you're a little bit nervous. Um, I try to encourage my kids, like, use that nervousness to help, <clears throat> one, focus on the game, but really, two, focus on the Lord and use it as an opportunity to pray to him. Lord, I'm, I'm nervous. <clears throat> I'm nervous about this game coming up. Like, help me with it. Like, calm my nerves. Like, again, if, if I'm trying to point them back to the Lord. Same thing with us. We're feeling like an opportunity's coming. We're in the conversation. The Lord looks like he, the door's open. We're getting a little bit nervous. Man, we've got to be praying. We've got to be asking the Lord, help me walk through this door. Make me bold for this task that you want me to take advantage of right now. That nervousness can help us realize, again, our need to be dependent on Jesus for everything and for what we're about to do. Next excuse. Kind of goes with nervous, but it is different. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Now, if I asked you all today to go out and find a tree and witness to it, one, you'd probably think I was off my rocker a little bit. I am off my rocker. That would only confirm it. But would you be afraid? No. No. You wouldn't be afraid of witnessing to some tree or some rock or some inanimate object, some chair. So why are you afraid when it's a person? It's fear of man. Let's just call it what it is. It's fear of man. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, the thing about the Proverbs, there's, you know, there's like a truth, and then there's almost like a counter-truth. Sometimes the, the, the truths are exactly the same and line up. Sometimes it's like there's this one thing, but here's what you really need to do. Well, that's what's going on here. Fear of man lays a snare. Well, what do we really need to do? We, if we're going to fear anyone, we need to fear God. Fear the Lord. That is the beginning of knowledge. So whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. One theologian said this, the Hebrew word here for snare refers to traps hunters use to catch animals or birds. Snares are dangerous. If we get caught, we must do whatever it takes to free ourselves. God has the power to free us, and he wants us living in the safe freedom of trusting him. But he frees us not by removing our fear of disapproval, but by transferring it to the right place, to God. And typically he frees us by helping us face our false fears so that they lose their power over us. It reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But even the Apostle Paul had to deal with the fear of man. 
We have to confess it. We have to confront it. Next excuse. I don't have the time. Listen, we make the time for things that we want to make the time for. All right, now I know y'all got a busy week coming up. <clears throat> um, and, and hopefully the Cardinals are still playing come Friday night because they actually win a game uh, in this National League Championship Series. Uh, but if I called you like Thursday and was like, hey, I, I just got some tickets that I can't use to the game tomorrow night. I'm sure you're going to be able to clear up your schedule. I know you're not going to skip life group somehow, but somehow you're still going to clear up, you're still going to clear up your schedule and make it to that Friday game. You're going to be praying for an afternoon game. <clears throat> but if I called you Thursday night and was like, hey, tomorrow we're, I'm going to be going witnessing, you want to go with me? You're like, I, I, you know, I got so much going on, man, and this, this busy weekend coming up. Like, we make time for the things that are important to us. Yes. Setting aside a time for this can be inconvenient. It can be intrusive. Here is a very most convicting verse for me. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And, I, and every time I... I think about how am I using my time, I think of that verse, and I usually get convicted. Making the best use of the time. Like, we all have the same amount of time. 24 hours in a day for each one of us. How are we going to use that time? Are we going to use it wisely? So, yeah, do we have time in one sense? No. Yeah, we all got busy stuff going on. We're all going here, going there. You've got to make the time. Because the days are evil. Look, people... people Everyone's time is short, and people need the gospel, and the days are evil. And we still have the opportunity and privilege in America at this point. It's pretty, it's pretty low cost compared to what our brothers and sisters in other countries face for them sharing the gospel. We need to take advantage of it. Next excuse. I don't, I don't, I, I don't have all the answers. Well, no one has all the answers. Okay? God has all the answers, but, but no one has all the answers. And um, I actually think when you acknowledge, if you're out talking to someone, one, most people, I, it's been a long time since someone has asked a, a question that I even thought was in the realm of challenging. Uh, not, and I'm not saying I'm all that. I'm just saying it's like most of it's just garden variety questions when you're, when you're sharing with people. And a lot of people, at least recently, that I've been sharing with, they really haven't had any pushback at all. Now, watch it happen, that'd be fine. But <clears throat> most of the time, it's, it's pretty low-level questions that are being asked. I don't think you have to worry about that too much. I almost think that's like a, a, a fake thing we put out there. But here's the thing. When you acknowledge, someone asks you a tough question, you're not sure. When you acknowledge to them that you're not sure about it, uh, I think that people actually really appreciate your honesty and humility. Instead of just trying to you know, fly something off the cuff or whatever, or just sound like you know what you're talking about, I mean, just say, like, hey, great question. I'm not sure about that. Let me look into it. I'll get back to you in a couple of days. I think people appreciate that. Then it kind of gives a, lot, a little more, even a lot more credence to all the other stuff you're saying. Because you're like, oh, wow, they, they, 
they, they really believe this and, and, and know what they're talking about here, but this area they weren't, so that means this they're pretty confident about. I'm, so I'm going to give them a little, more, a little more credence on that. All right, next excuse. I let someone else do it. I mean, that's kind of Moses' last excuse, right? Can you, can you send someone else? Well, what if other Christians are saying that as well? I'll let someone else do it. Uh, because you know they are. Right? Um, the thing is, like, we've been tasked with this commission, each one of us. Now, at Yale, uh, where Jonathan Edwards was a student, Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the most brilliant minds ever produced in America, you should read his biography. Pastor Vaughn actually wrote two different books on Jonathan Edwards. One of them is one of my favorite books ever. Great, great biography. Uh, but he, ended, he went to Yale. Uh, the president of Yale, a few years later, Ezra Stiles, he said this about Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's, uh, I couldn't find the exact quote. But he said something along these lines. In a very short time, uh, hardly above oblivion, when they come across Edwards' books in the trash cans of libraries, those who read them are going to be looked at as awkward and foolish. Now, before today, you probably had never even heard of Edward, uh, Ezra Stiles. But everyone's heard of Jonathan Edwards. So <clears throat> this guy who was, who was mocking Edwards and all this work, and if you read his biography, I mean, Edwards got kicked out of his own church. You know, so uh, you look at, at the ministry he had, and at the time, if you just valued it from the time he was living, you might not have thought it was, it was, it was very much of anything, uh, as much as he was doing. No one knows about styles. Edwards is still read to this day. Uh, my point is this. We don't, we don't know the impact we'll have. We just don't. Only the passing of time is really, is really what shows the impact we've made. We can see the impact sometimes in our children. We can see the impact in the people around us. Uh, <clears throat> sadly, usually we, we, we find out about the impact of other people when that person dies. If you have a service set up, then everyone shares, but it doesn't really benefit the person who's dead because they're dead, right? Um, so then everyone else gets to hear about the impact, and even then, we don't know how much of an impact it had that we haven't heard. So we don't know the impact that we'll have, even just our gospel faithful sharing. We don't know what impact, we don't know what trickle that has into eternity. Now, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that on the other side of, of eternity, God's going to let us see that. He's going to let us see that ripple effect. And that person that we were nervous about sharing with and that we weren't sure about at Walmart that we shared with, like that impacted them majorly and then, boom, changed their life. We just didn't know about it. We never saw that person again. And we've heard in our own circles of people that some, someone random did share with them, and it did have an impact. Andrea's, uh, Andrea's uncle, who ended up coming to faith, but before he was saved, um, someone, uh, some believer gave him a real, a real tough, straight-up word and basically was like, you know, why don't you, why don't you toughen up and be a real man of God for your son? And at the time, uh, Andrea's uncle, he didn't like hearing that word. But that word, like, resonated with him for years and years and, and, and was you know, one of the catalysts for him realizing that he was missing something in his life. 
So we're the ambassadors. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, so did you catch that in verse 18? Uh, God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then look what happened. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we're the representatives, we're the ambassadors. God uses us to be the reconcilers. He wants us to be the ones that go. He gives us, it says, this ministry of reconciliation. Didn't give it to the angels. He could have, but he didn't. He could have given it just to the leadership, but he didn't. It's to everybody. Okay? The Bible itself isn't called an ambassador, but God's people are called ambassadors. We're the only ones given this title. Okay? We've been commissioned to go. And is there a price for our obedience? Yes. In different ways, in different shapes. There is a price. And we've got to count the cost and be willing to pay the price. Now, <clears throat> Pastor Wang, who disappeared in China, it's been about a year, he disappeared, and uh, he knew that the persecution was likely to ramp up, and he had penned a letter, maybe some of you have read it, before he disappeared in China, that uh, his church was to release if he was gone for more than about 24 hours. I want you to hear a part of that letter. He says, This is why I'm not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime, regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. I mean, sharing with people and being a believer and, and meeting uh, as a church. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ and the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus... If through this he continues discipling and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. I mean, what's he saying? If there's going to be persecution, I mean, if that furthers the kingdom, then I'm all there. He goes on, Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. 
It is what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Did you catch that last part? A communist regime with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. And the communist regime is definitely afraid of the church. And the church should no longer be afraid of any power, spiritual or physical. And I pray to God that he would do that with our church regarding our culture and our environment. No longer afraid. And pray to the Lord that he will remove the fear of man from you. Pray that he'll cast it aside. God has done amazing things to people who have been willing to heed his call. John Patton, I might have shared it before, uh, he was a missionary. Um, To the best of our knowledge, he he ended up going to the new, uh, I think it's called Hebrides, it might be pronounced different, islands. No Christian influence before two men went there in 1839 um, had had ever got to that island. And those missionaries uh, literally were killed and eaten by cannibals within minutes of landing on the shore. And John Patton was seminary trained, very talented, had a promising future um, in the church, but he felt strongly called to the mission field. Um, You have talents here, he was told. God wants to use those talents here and many giftings to bless the people here with, but he felt called to go, and he was criticized greatly for it. In fact, one man, a Mr. Dixon, uh, exploded. The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals. He has replied to him. It's classic. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They are to be eaten by worms. (laughs) I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now, when you read the, the biography of Patton, you find out that he, he had many afflictions and many sufferings, but he was faithful to go to these islands that he felt God called him to. His wife ended up dying on those islands. Their baby died about a week later. He had to sleep on their graves so that the cannibals wouldn't dig up the graves and eat his dead family. But God did a work and ended up converting that island. In fact, <clears throat> they, they did a study about uh, 93 years after his death, uh, 85% of the population of the one particular island that he was on identified itself as Christian. From zero to 85%. So his, his legacy lives on. Listen, if, if Jesus appeared in the sanctuary right now and walked up to you and said, hey, I want you to share with your dad, with your coworker, with the person in your math class, I mean, what would you say to him? Of course you'd say yes, right? <clears throat> but it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't need to take Jesus showing up here, right? 
Because Jesus already did appear. How many times does he have to appear, friends? He appeared. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And then guess what? He commissioned you. And he tells you to go. He appeared on this earth. He came once to die for the sins of men. He did appear. And listen, if we wait till we feel like we're ready, we're hardly ever going to do it. Right? And I feel like sometimes the enemy, right when you're getting ready to share with someone, right when you're trying to open your mouth, it's like he's got his army out there, and that little demon is like whispering in your ear. You're not qualified. You're not ready. You're messed up. You did this, the other. All these things. We, we just got to gotta push past that. We got to rebuke that demon. We got to open our mouth. We got to be faithful to speak. And if you know him, then you know he lives. And you know he is real. And you know his presence is with us right now. And you know he will go with you every step of the way. That's an encouragement. That's a comfort. He didn't just like send us out on our own. Think of the, the Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always. Think about if Moses had never gone. Think of what Moses would have missed out on. Did Moses go? Yes. Did he go reluctantly? Yes. But listen, out of his devotion to Yahweh, he went. And out of his devotion to Yahweh, he was very faithful. And out of his devotion to Yahweh, he obeyed the Lord's instructions. And what was the result? God used him and used him mightily. And we got some Moseses here. We're reluctant to go. And that's okay. But back to my question. Did Moses go? Yes. Did he want to go? No. But did he go? Yes. Why? His devotion to Yahweh. So our devotion to the Lord drives us towards obedience in this area. And if God's asking us to do something, he's going to be with us. He's not going to let us down. If he's asking us to do something, he's empowered us, as we've seen, to do the task that he's called us to do. And our own strength, absolutely not. In his strength, every time. So that means that we can go. That means he will be faithful to walk with us each step of the way. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the mighty Yahweh. We thank you that you work through Moses and you're working through us. And not only that, you say that the ministry you've given us is greater than the ministry of Moses. What a privilege to partake in that ministry, Lord. And I pray for us and our reluctance at times in sharing and going that out of our devotion to you, we would go. We would push through the reluctance. Out of our devotion to you, we would do it. Lord, give us hearts that are faithful. Give us hearts to serve you more and more. Lord, we need you in this task. We need you 
in all tasks of walking the Christian life. But we need you in this one. We thank you that you have empowered us. Let us grab hold of that power as we go. Let us trust you. It's a trust issue in many, many, many ways. Let us trust you. Know that you are faithful and that you will be with us. We love you. Amen.